Listen, it's no secret that customers expect the best experience from every business, including yours. Whether it's with customer support or sales or really everything in between, Zendesk products help you give your customers the experience that they deserve. Better yet, qualifying startups can join the Zendesk for Startups program and get Zendesk products free for six months. For six months! That's all of Zendesk, free for six months. Win on every channel with the Zendesk for Startups program. Visit Zendesk.com slash equity to claim your free six months of Zendesk. Terms and conditions apply. Hello and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital-focused podcast where we unpack the numbers behind the headlines. I'm Alex Wilhelm and joining me is Danny Crichton, TechCrunch's managing editor. Danny, hello and how is New York? Uh, New York is doing great. Actually, today I have to confess, there has been glimmers of springtime here on the East Coast. 40s, 50s? Like, how, how can you go wrong on that? I didn't wear a big jacket today. I wore a light jacket today. I did freeze all the way to the coffee spot, but I'm very proud of myself and that means that summer is coming. And so I'm in a really good mood. And that means we're going to talk about something that I love to start, which is food. And Hungry Panda, Danny, raised around this week. And I am tickled about this company, I think. Uh, so Hungry Panda raised $20 million And it's a food delivery app, but not like the ones we know about. Not like a, it'll deliver anything to your house. Not just random stuff. It's like a tuned or specific delivery service. And it focuses on um, delivering to Chinese communities in 31 cities in the UK, Italy, France, Australia, New Zealand, and US. It's tailored for Chinese language users and kind of focuses on Chinese food and Chinese groceries. I think that's super cool. And I love that it's global already. What do you think? Yeah, so it started in, in Nottingham. And um, in addition to being entirely in Chinese, so the App Store page is in Chinese, the home page is in Chinese, um, it also accepts Chinese services. So it accepts Alipay, WeChat Pay, and it heavily uses uh, WeChat for marketing as a channel. And so I think what's interesting, we've talked about, what was it, Deliveroo and, and DoorDash mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and Grubhub over the years. This, is, this has got to be one of the first ones I've ever seen, though, that's really focused on a particular cuisine and in a particular community at the same time. Yeah, you know what this reminds me of in a weird way? What's that company called? Slice? Aren't they doing like software just for pizza companies? Which I guess is, is, is like Italian food. Yeah, well, I yes. mean, the, the idea there is that like pizza is like something like 70% of all delivery anyways. And so why not just have a service that does that? This it seems related, if different, to be clear. But also the, the focus makes it very exciting because I presume it would be very good at the one thing it does. Unlike, say, Uber Eats, which in my experience does kind of a C-plus job about everything, I'd rather have a B-plus about something that's really specific and just kind of have that tailored application. That's right. And I think the um, well, the other thing with Slice, you know, it's a New York City-based company. It has done super well from what I've heard, uh, certainly better than Zumi Pizza. Ah, SoftBank jokes already. This is going to be a long episode. Hey, hey, but they can do a partnership with their organic pizza boxes now, compostable pizza boxes. But uh, Slice is like key. The, 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 the magic there is that it focuses on independent pizza stores. So it does not do Domino's. It doesn't do Pizza Hut. It only does sort of mom and pop, you know, single right. or maybe very small chain kind of pizza slices. And so I, I'm guessing it's sort of similar to Hungry Panda where, you know, if you're really a pizza connoisseur, you care a lot about a lot of adjectives, right? Whether it's Detroit style or Chicago style or New York thin or whatever the case may be. Mm. My guess is Hungry Panda is doing something similar for different regions of China. If you want Hunanese cuisine versus Shanghainese cuisine versus Hong Kongese cuisine, you know, you'll be able to select that in the app. But what I thought was particularly interesting here is I was looking up Grubhub's numbers yeah. and uh, from their latest quarterly filing. And um, the, the company had $322 million in revenue and sales and marketing was $71 million or roughly 22% of its revenues. Um, so roughly a fifth of the company's spend is on marketing. And I'm guessing, you know, because of the WeChat marketing in some of the other channels, 
and, and, and of course, just word of mouth, right, in a, in a tight kind of uh, enclave community, you have an opportunity to actually make the marketing much more affordable for, for Hungry Panda compared to a lot of its competitors who are targeting a broad kind of, you know, audience. So because they're targeting a specific group of people, it probably has higher uh, virality inside that group. So essentially, better word of mouth spread, lower need to go out and buy billboards or you put signs on taxis, whatever, and therefore they can spend less on sales and marketing, have better margins, a better business overall, and maybe kind of do what we haven't seen outside of Meituan, which is make money doing on-demand stuff, which is, you know. That's right. And, and according to the company, their operations in the United Kingdom and New York City are already profitable as of today. So, so I don't know if that's like where the magic sauce is going on there, but what I, I do think that the, the marketing piece has got to be a part of it. Okay, equivalent with that, though, because what I presume they mean here is that those cities are contribution positive, and this mm-hmm. is the same game that DoorDash has been playing. Like, they talk about how, you know, 60% of their markets make money. That means that they generate kind of, I think, overall net cash back to the business, not that the business, uh, if you sliced off, like, core operations on a per-city basis and applied that to the city, would still be profitable. So a distinction at the same time, though, it's much smaller, so I think it's, we can give them extra space to say things like that. And they do want to reach a uh, annual run rate of 200 mil by May. I'm presuming that's a GMV number, I'm not a net it's revenue a GMV number. Because if that was net rev, it'd be like That'd 2 be crazy. billion. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Be, well, that would, I mean, Grubhub last quarter was 322, right? So that would be a lot. Yeah, that would, that would be a simply insane amount. So uh, 200 million GMV, I don't know what that breaks down to in revenue for them. Maybe like if they get like a 15% take rate, it'd be like a 30 million net revenue run rate somewhere in there. So, you know, all right, all right, all right cool. But let's put food aside and talk about uh, two companies that raise money, I think both today, actually. Was both this... today within a couple hours. This has got to be one of the strangest. I woke up to, to read the front page of TechCrunch.com this morning, found out that Founders Fund and Andreessen have both backed at the Series A or Seed Org chart companies, yep. companies that focus on the org chart, which, which if you think of in the history of startups, the whole point of startups was, you know, sort of blowing up the org chart. It was like, hey, we're going to knock out like these big incumbent companies. And now we're like, no, no, let's, let's rebuild the org chart for, for 2020, I guess. So uh, org charts are in. What do you want to bet that both these companies are like, we have a very flat management structure to help us build org charts. That's right. <laughs> exactly. Well, and, and what's crazy is, so, so, so let's talk about the two companies. So we have okay. the org. Which, which maybe at some point, that's not the .org, which would actually be kind of cool, but it is the org. And they nabbed $8.5 million by Founders Fund, plus a previously undisclosed $2.5 million seed round uh, from Sequoia, which yes. according to the Form D was back in July of 2019. So $11 million flat for the org with a capital O, no dot. And that was a bit more money than Charthop raised. Charthop raised a $5 million seed led by Andreessen. And the TC headline uh, said it is to automate the org chart. Back to that again. You know, I think it's not a shock to see a $5 million seed from Andreessen. They can't really write checks smaller than that, probably. And they probably want to put in a Series A in 12 to 18 months. So they just kind of bought optionality. This is the big fun doing small deals thing. We've talked about a bunch on the show and on the site. In this case, they want to like bring in a bunch of different systems and have them all plug in to create an organizational chart. And then what the, what the software that lets people do is kind of cut that different ways. So if you want to see your company from a geographic perspective, you can do that. If you want to cut it up by open recs, whatever, you can do that. And so it's an org chart plus is how I kind of think about this. It's kind of an evolution of it. It lets you kind of go through time as well to see like what it looked like in 2011 versus 2012, which is cool. You know, it, this feels very one dimensional to me as a SaaS product. We talk a lot about vertical SaaS, which is like building software products for dentist offices only. So kind of one vertical thing. This is like a feature vertical, like this narrow band of, of functionality, which probably has some play. But I mean, it doesn't seem like it's going to have tons of it's not going to be as big as like Slack. 
right? I mean, this is small. No, but I, I think the question is, so Workday is obviously one of the big kahunas in this space. And Workday's total revenue with the year ending uh, January 31st of uh, 2019 was $2.8 billion. So a huge, huge company, right? And this, this, is, this has been on the public markets for, what, six, seven years. Workday is a piece of garbage. And I, 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 like many people, use Workday. That's the managing part of Managing Editor. And I can tell you, it is a pile of heaping garbage. And I would say, we just went through a reorg, right? Uh, not really TechCrunch, but above and around and you know through TechCrunch. Uh, we went through this sort of reorg at Verizon Media. And so there are all new org charts. Like, I mean, we, we, yeah. I literally got a chart printed for me in a binder and it's like, what? here's your org chart. And so as crazy as it sounds when you're at a large company where reorgs happen every six months, everyone's being reassigned everywhere, there's all this work. I can see a world where ChartHop makes total sense. It is good to point out, though, that these are very different companies, right? So ChartHop is kind of HR SaaS. It's like org planning software. Yes. And if you have to do org planning and Workday, you'd understand immediately why a feature like this is valuable. On the flip side, the org is sort of a more group or connection-oriented LinkedIn is sort of how they're positioning it. So the, the way to think of it is you're trying to figure out you know, who at the company does what. And maybe you, you want to sell to that company. You want to build a partnership. Maybe exactly. you're Ford and you want to know who at Uber is going to do autonomous vehicles or something like this. And so what, what's interesting is that they're both getting at the same data. My guess is that ChartHop will end up doing something around selling the data around, you know, who does oh. what within the companies. Like that's where they'll end up. That's not their pricing model today, of course. I'm, that's pure speculation on my part. It's pure enterprise SaaS, I believe, uh, but uh, in their pricing model. But I think the org and ChartHop will compete long term because the value there is, you know, who does what? And the people who really want to know that aren't just internally, but externally. So your point is that they're working in the same space with different directions, and they're going to kind of probably build features closer to one another over time because there's no way they're going to stay as peer to their current vision. Maybe is what I'll say to that. But to underscore the point about the org and this idea of creating a public database of org charts, if you think about the value there, it's not small because we've seen publications like The Information do org charts for organizations. And I, you know, they've been doing that for a while. So I presume those posts have resonance with their community and everyone there pays. So that must demonstrate some value. I would be surprised, though, pushing back gently against your point, if ChartHop did pursue a public version of itself, because if I was a ChartHop customer, right, and Alex Incorporated has 500 employees and I used it to track my org charts over time, cool. And you were like, by the way, thanks for being our customer. We're also going to sell your data so other sales teams can pitch you better. I would be like, go bleep yourself because I would be furious. That's very important data to me. To me, It shows who got promoted, who got demoted, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that's my take. I will say, though, I couldn't find any pricing information on ChartHop's website, so I couldn't talk about how much it costs to use. But I think they're charging um, per employee on a subscription basis. So probably not a cheap product either. No, but I think uh, LinkedIn does this sort of mafioso kind of pricing as well, right? Like people run their recruiting operations on LinkedIn, and LinkedIn also uses that data to funnel into its other products. So, you know, there's always a little bit of, you know, give and take in some of these sort of models. It's not Workday where it's all your data. Uh, so we'll see. We, we disagree. I, I, we, dis we disagree because LinkedIn has like several hundred million people on it. There's like 84 right. people on ChartHop. So. <laughs> And there's like 54 Not an official on, statistic on the, from yeah. the, the chart up uh, press release. But to yeah. be clear, we're just riffing, but I'm saying like the LinkedIn gets to be a mafioso because they have the muscle. These are these are little baby startups. Well, anyways, we will check back in on this, but I want to talk about them kind of in a more meta sense, if I may, because uh, this is the third time this year I've run into what I call a, a startup cluster. And um, earlier this year, there was a number of companies building OKR software that all raised around the same time. Workboard, GTM Hub, Ally. 
and then Purdue did some product work and actually made a free tier for their product. And then a little bit later on, insurance marketplaces like the Zebra, Policy Genius, Gobby, and Insurify all raised within a couple of weeks of each other. And then this morning, on the same 12-hour part of the same day, we had two companies working in the org chart space raised. And so I'm just kind of confused. Like, are they all finding out that everyone else is announcing and then deciding to all kind of race to the punch? Or is this just like really weird bits of, uh, of luck? But you've been a VC, Danny, so I'm kind of curious if you had any insight into how these companies all end up announcing so close to one another. You know, uh, founders are really smart. And I, I, I do think, I, I, you know, we can talk about mimetic theory or whatever. I, I think the reality is, is that there's opportunities in the marketplace. A lot of smart people see the same opportunities at the same time. They start companies at roughly the same time. I mean, we, we've seen this in banking, right? All the neo banks in fintech. Um, God, they were all started in the same like six month period of time. If you go like a generation ago, messaging apps, all the major messaging yep. apps around the world were started within like 12 months of each other. It's nuts. Like there was a moment, in a, a window of opportunity in which you had to launch a product to capture the wave that was going yes. on. What I, I, what I think is interesting here is um, I'm looking at Workday. So Workday would be one of the larger buyers. It's not the only buyer in this space, but Workday would be one of the larger kind of acquirers in the HR space. And it looks like they haven't really been active. I mean, so they, they have not acquired a lot of companies. They did one big acquisition in uh, December with Scout RFP, but they've only made 13 in the last decade plus, and a couple of those in, in 2018. So what, what's interesting is the HR space does not consolidate very much. So particularly OKR software, like I don't know where that goes. You know, does everyone have a performance SaaS tool like this mm. that, you know, there's enough spend in that category where you can envision two or three tools making 100, 200 million, you know, basically joining your 100 million ARR club in this tiny, what you call a feature vertical. And I, I think that's right. Well, so on this point, I was talking to Drew Olinoff, a former, uh, I think, two-time TechCruncher, if I have my personal history of Drew correct. Drew's, Drew's a friend of mine and a friend of the blog and, and the pod. He, he, we were talking about this exact kind of like startup cluster about org software today. And he said, you know, are these just instant acquisition targets for LinkedIn? And it's the same thing. LinkedIn hasn't been active either. So I don't know... Who's the acquirer out there that's going to snap these up if they don't end up building much broader feature sets? But it's cool. I mean, I, I love seeing people kind of come out with similar products. It makes it for a more fun thing to cover because it's not discrete events. There's more of a trend to it. And one last note, I just spoke to the CEO of Policy Genius, whose name is Jennifer, if I recall correctly. And I asked her this question because I was just super curious. And she says, well, everyone kind of raises around the same time. You raise at the end of a year and then you kind of wait for the year to start and then you drop it at the most advantageous moment. So everyone's holding mm -hmm. on these funding announcements. They're not like we raised yesterday, the money hit the accounts and the release went out. They're all kind of sitting on these for three, four months to pick the right moment. And that I think adds to the the agglomeration or grouping effect that we're talking about. So no, no, for sure. And like look, we we looked up the the form D's for both the org and chart hop, but like in the org's case, you know, the seed round was in July of last year. It just got announced. So that was what, nine months, eight months. In Chart Hop's case, the the round was in September. They just announced it's been about five, six months on that one as well, from when they submitted to the SEC to when they sort of did the press release and kind of unveiling to the press or whatever. So it's not uncommon to see that, particularly at the seed. I, I actually think six months is probably on the early side for a lot of these companies, frankly. Well, the other side of that is if you haven't raised in a while and people are beginning to sniff around going like, what the hell? You want to get that news out there fast, especially if you have a big hiring push coming. It's much easier to hire if you just announced a thing and got a bunch of coverage. I mean, this is one reason why people love to hit certain valuation thresholds because it gives them a certain sheen in the hiring market. I think we'll see more of this. I think it's pretty exciting, but I do want to scoot along to a much bigger company, if I may. And today I want to talk about debt. And Danny, I'm going to lean on you a little bit for the next like 10 minutes, but uh, DigitalOcean, a company that I didn't know much about until recently. I know you have a bit more context on its past mm -hmm. than I do. 
announced this morning they raised uh, another hundred million in debt. And this story was really interesting to me because the company has a certain set of economics that I I think are kind of good and you think are a little bit less good. And we're deciding why they raised debt is kind of the question here. And so here's a little bit of history. They hit 200 million ARR roughly in 2018, about 250 million ARR at the towards the Q4 point ish of 2019. They're going to hit about 300 million ARR in the first half of this year. That's kind of their last 100 mil of growth. They're aiming towards cash flow break even, free cash flow break even in a couple of years, a billion in revenue in about five, and EBITDA profits in the low 20s. And they're growing at about middle 20 percentage points. It's as close as I could get them to tell me. And so instead of raising more equity, they raise 100 million more in debt, which limits dilution for their former shareholders or former investors. So that's pretty good. And in my view, if they can accelerate their growth a little bit with this new infusion, they're going to be on a pretty good IPO path. You said, on the other hand, this is like the quintessential private equity stories. I want to hear why you think that. So there's a couple of different points of view here. One is DigitalOcean started in sort of the low end side of the cloud market, right? So it originally was sort of these timeshared servers. This is like a decade ago. But, you know, a couple of folks were basically, hey, I want to spend $10 a month. I want to have hosting. I want to be able to customize my box. They've now moved into cloud like most of the others in this space. But they've always sort of focused on the smallest companies, you know, think SMB, not people who would use AWS or have like the massive DevOps and, and engineering talent to be able to use 50 different AWS or Google Cloud services. So it's a little bit more integrated. The problem is those customers are really expensive to, to kind of handle, right? They have a lot of support requests. They're hard to market to, and they don't drive a lot of revenue. So this part of the cloud market has always been really, really tough. And I think you see that in the growth, which is, you know, as you said, in the mid 20s, uh, so 20% or 25% year over year, which is low. I mean, compared to a lot of SaaS companies we've talked about on the show, where we're talking about doubles, triples, quintuples in some cases. But you from a smaller base, though. I mean, like from a, talking about, often from a smaller base, but even yeah. we, we've talked about companies that hit 100 million ARR and, and are still on a 3x kind of a growth trajectory. So, you know, my, my view on debt is, you know, in a context like this, uh, you've had a leadership transformation. A lot of the C suite has turned over, they're sort of rebuilding the deck over there. You know, they're striving for profitability. And I, I think that you're, you're seeing them kind of line all the, the tools up for a, a PE transaction. Yeah, maybe. And if they do, that, that wouldn't be stupid. I'm not trying to say that that's wrong or that'd be a poor choice. I just I think if they can get growth a little bit faster, given their profitability, they just have lower growth expectations. And if they have they have an ability to show you know relatively low churn, and I did dig into that with the CEO Yancy on a, on a post I have up on TC, I think they have a shot. They have like five hundred thousand customers at like five hundred bucks each average ACV or something like that. So you're right, it is pretty small. Their CAC is super low. They have a pretty interesting funnel system to drive self serve, and uh, if they can build out some features that support slightly larger customers. I mean, maybe they can grow that ACV and and kind of make it work. I guess to me, it's a fun story because the company is certainly not going to die. So the question is, That's right. where, yeah. where does it go? And a lot of times startups are like, will this work? And the answer is usually not. But in this case, the company certainly isn't going anywhere. So now it's a question of trajectory. And that's a different type of question to answer. And it's very fun to think about. Also, the CEO was really just kind of like open and just kind of answered my questions, which is not how calls usually go. <laughs> right, exactly. Like usually right. you're like, can you tell me a thing? They're like, no, we can't tell you that. You know, I, I think that, you know, part of it is is there's real numbers here, right? So it's not a South Bank company where it's all kind of magic into the future and you're hoping for like a 10x from here. Like, I, I think the company really understands that, you know, it, it it's dollars and cents, right? Particularly at the low end of the, of the cloud services market. It's all about how you serve that customer and, and, and drive margins. So, you know, debt allows them to get out of that that hamster wheel of saying, how do I get another 5, 10x on my return? 
right? Yeah. We need to raise a 200, you know, 200 million at a 2 billion post. Now we need to turn into a $20 billion company. Yeah. And I don't, I don't see that path personally in DigitalOcean. I'm not a hater, but I, I just can't imagine how you get to that kind of scale. But I think you can get to a really durable quality company that is cash flow positive, that is profitable, competes well in the marketplace. And that, that's going to be attractive maybe to some other players in the marketplace, in the cloud services space. Maybe there's an acquisition um, in the PE sense. Like there's a couple of different uh, like exit opportunities there. And, yeah. and for a kind of venerable company, that, that's not a bad place to be. No, no, not at all. I mean, I, I, you could see it even fit into like an Azure or something if they wanted to go against uh, AWS in a new way and f- find customers to upsell and so forth. So I, I'm excited about it. I think it's going to be cool. Um, and as a small little add-on to this, we've written a lot about debt lately and venture debt and revenue-based financing, which is just term loans with different kind of repayment metrics. And we've talked about all sorts of different things. And I'm just, I want to just double click on that to remind everyone that this is a growing thing. I, I covered some survey data from 2019 showing kind of the, the growth in venture debt globally and in the U.S., and the numbers kind of match my view, which is that it's it's been growing sequentially year over year for some time now. I think it's reaching about like 10 billion or something like that. But this is one more example of debt being used. I think people are just not as sold on equity being the BL end all for recurring revenue companies. And I think this is an example of that. Bankers are also now stepping up to the plate. So kind of both sides of the market are coming together. I want to move on to the Robinhood thing, but Danny, I just can't help. Debt to me is more popular, but you've been on the VC side before. So am I kind of wrong that debt feels more popular now? Has it always been this popular and I missed it? Or is this different than it was five years ago? Look, I think everyone always loves debt, uh, which maybe is not a good thing, but uh, it sounds weird to say that. It, don't take that out of context. But I, I think in a world where your choice is dilution on the cap table or debt, uh, which yeah. is just sort of on the balance sheet, like, you know, obviously you'd rather not take dilution either for the VCs or for the founders or for the employees, right? So if debt is an option, debt is now, I think, more and more popular. The other piece here is just more and more companies are SaaS, right? And and for a lot of the debt providers, they understand what this looks like. By the way, a lot of venture debt does have an equity component to it. There are more yep. and more people who do both. So they yep. get upside on both directions. And as we got more data on these companies, like I, I, what's interesting to me is that debt has gotten earlier and earlier. It's not just that it's gotten bigger in terms of sheer dollar values, mm. but it's also you know, DigitalOcean is the kind of company we would have expected to have debt 10 years ago, right? Which is an established revenue producing, near profitability, lots of numbers that prove that they can, or they're going to be, pay off that debt. Now we see debt as early as the Series A, right? We're not, uh, it's not uncommon to see an SVB loan or from, from some of the other folks in that market to suddenly show up there. Well, the only, only thing I'd throw in there is that SVB has been around for a long time lending Series B and C companies two, three, four, five million after they raise a round, right? So that that's not the thing we're talking about. We're talking about like, raising 15 as part of a $30 million round, like taking right. on more debt in the exchange of equity, not just tacking on a little bit of SVB debt because they trust Sequoia, who's under cap table, right, to pay it back. So like, right. it, not, not the same thing. Thank you for that. Uh, but now we get to have our, our cake and ice cream, which is the story that I've been excited about all day. So I woke up this morning thinking, what, what, will, what will the day bring? And the day brought me an enormous gift in the form of Morgan Stanley spending $13 billion in stock on E-Trade, a company that you think is old, but it's from the 90s. And I immediately was very excited about what this would mean for Robinhood's valuation. Robinhood, of course, the, the infamous, famous, lovely, terrifying the private unicorn that has raised over $900 million is valued in the $7 billion range. And so that's not that far from $13 billion. But before we get into the numbers and all that, what was your first gut reaction? It's like old company buys old company. Well, I mean, that's not very exciting. You know, okay. keep, keep in mind, we literally had HSBC layoffs yesterday of like, what, 35,000 people are being laid off at HSBC. So there's a lot of, of, of big, big changes going on in, in the big bank world. And uh, I, I think that this is a really interesting play 
possibly to compete with, you know, Goldman Sachs, right? Goldman Sachs is getting into retail banking, it's running Apple Card. So another attempt to to double down on on consumers. So this is kind of like Morgan Stanley's Marcus, uh, to use the Goldman Sachs analogy. Yes, maybe a little bit of a stretch, but yes. Okay, well, I mean, you said Goldman. I'm just trying to connect the dots for people who don't know what Goldman's doing. Sorry for explaining. We don't your even know point, what, Danny. We, we don't know Marcus either. I mean, who who yeah. knows Marcus? Mar- I mean, Marcus is a nice guy, anyway. So I'm sure he's lovely. So some numbers to back up everyone's kind of comprehension of this. So E-Trade, I went through their latest Q4 earnings, looking at both Q4 and 2019. They have about 5.2 million accounts. They have about 360 billion in assets. Those two data points actually from the Morgan Stanley uh, release. Revenue in 19 of 2.9 billion, net income of 955 million, a net uh, addition of 300,000 accounts, I think, in the year, and about 52K, I think it was in Q4. Critically, though, inside the fourth quarter, there was some troubling trends, uh, one of which was commissions revenue dropped from, I think, 122 million to 56. Why? Well, everyone dropped all their fees for trading in October of last year because of Robinhood, who was kicking their butts, when driving new accounts. And so they all went, oh, well, we can't charge seven bucks for a trade anymore. So that went to zero and trading commission revenue went down. Doesn't mean that that E-Trade wasn't still profitable. It was. Doesn't mean that it wasn't valuable. It still is. The question is, you know, how do you value that much accounts and kind of long-term interest revenue? And uh, the answer was $13 billion. Little last data point, they, between dividends and share buybacks, returned over $200 million to shareholders in uh, Q4 alone of last year. So the scale of the maturity, the profitability, and the return and stability that E-Trade offers is its value prop. Robinhood has growth and the better television ads. But uh, a data point, one last one that I'm going to let you talk, is that uh, the, on a per account basis, E-Trade had more money in its accounts because I think it was an average of like 69000 per known account for E-Trade. And Robinhood, according to survey data, had like 1 to 5K per. So more accounts at Robinhood, less AUM, fewer accounts at E-Trade, more AUM. And that's kind of the, the picture, Danny, of this deal. I think that's exactly right. I mean, look, the the revolution, in my view, for, for Robinhood was it, it found a business model, mostly selling order flow, that that underwrote really small account trading, right? You can have $1,000, trade a couple of shares, you can buy one Tesla share, maybe two. I don't know. How's it doing Depends today? on the day. It depends on the day. Maybe five. But the, 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 they found a, a business model that worked there that didn't involve commissions, right? Because when you're, when you're buying and selling a single share... Maybe a Tesla at $1,000, it makes sense. But if you're buying, you know, a $10 share and you're paying three bucks for a commission, it just doesn't work. It, it, the scale just that makes no sense. Um, yep. the, the, the flip side of this, though, and this is where I think Morgan Stanley and E-Trade are going to get interesting is, you know, the big challenge is how do you get money into those accounts, right? SoFi is getting into trading. Um, a bunch of the other kind of new fintech companies, they're all getting into all the products, right? They're, if yes. you think of it as a big matrix in the Excel spreadsheet, like everyone wants an X in every box, and Robinhood, I think, is is the one that's going to struggle here a little bit, which is to say, you know, how do they connect to the bank? How do they get more of your assets out of your checking and savings accounts or your retirement accounts and get that onto the Robinhood platform so they can make that order flow money? They can make their money from interest. You know, now Morgan Stanley and E-Trade are going to line up. They're going to build that all out. That's That's not a pleasant place to be. Let's just put it that way. No, if you're Robinhood looking at this new combined entity, they've got more money, more accounts, more pricing power, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's right. Uh, on, on Robinhood's side, they have a little SaaS product. I think it's called Robinhood Gold, like five bucks a month. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they do have some SaaS revenue kind of built into their income. Investors love that. So not to be discounted, but they, they, I think they still have a long way to grow into their 7.6, 7.7 billion dollar valuation, given their kind of presumed revenue scale. But, you know, I wouldn't have guessed they would hit 10 million accounts as fast as they did. I think it was December of 19. So, you know, I don't want to be a bear on Robinhood, 
But I do think that the E-Trade price implies that Robinhood has more revenue scale to achieve to actually kind of earn its past valuation. But with the amount of capital that's raised, Danny, it must have a couple hundred million still in the bank. I think it raised like 370 million last year that's or right. something like that. Yep. So they, they must still have a huge chunk of that to play with. And they have time because the markets are still going up. And that won't always be the case. There could be some downside for Robinhood if slower markets happen and people don't trade as much. You can't sell that order flow. Revenue goes down. Things look dicey. But, you know, tapping things off today, we, we know that SaaS stocks hit another all-time high this morning. So the market is as uh, frothy and delightful as it could be. So you've been tracking all the stock market stuff, Danny? I track it really closely. Look, I think the show summarizes all of the tools that we have to use these days. I mean, we're tracking prices in Robinhood. We can now... For every SaaS stock that we're following, look at the org chart and see who's up and who's down, who's in, who's out. And then we can order Chinese takeout like all good investment bankers on Hungry Panda. We got everything we need right here. That is the perfect outro, ladies and gentlemen. We'll be back next week. Is that usable? Danny, that was very good and I'm thankful. Sorry that I was mean earlier. (laughs) No worries.